Good morning. And welcome to First UU Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're glad you're here. I would like to extend a special welcome to the visitors here this morning. If you have been coming for a while and you would like to make First UU your spiritual home, we would like to invite you to join this congregation. We come from a long heritage that teaches that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst by welcoming the person to your right and left this morning. Please join me in the lighting of the chalice using the words that are in your order of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. The call to worship this morning is All I Cannot Save by Adrienne Rich. My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. Let us say together our mission statement, found in the order of service and written on the wall. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. The centering meditation reading is The Peace of the Wild Things by Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel before me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world, and I am free. Good morning, everybody. I come to you not as a minister, but as a gardener. (laughs) It's great to be back, and I appreciate the invitation. Um, Today I'm going to be offering kind of an unusual reflection on uh, spirituality uh, that is deeply rooted in place, and uh, talking about place in our lives, or the lack of place in our lives. And uh, as, some, as a gardener, that's something I think about a lot. The requirements of my place, <laughs> the water, the nutrients, the compost, the mulch, the raking, the weeding, all the things that need to be done to a particular place. And uh, we'll be playing with that metaphor as we go along. It's really about a different way to live in relationship with the everyday and ordinary things in our lives the things that we, in, and the places that we inhabit. 
And it's about a relationship that's deeply rooted in transcendence. Rooted in transcendence. So I'll start with a travel story. Not what I did on my summer vacation, but it's close. Several years ago, I had the great good fortune to fulfill a lifetime personal dream of going to Kyoto, Japan. Now, for a gardener, visiting Kyoto is a genuine pilgrimage. It is the home to literally hundreds of the world's finest Zen gardens. And I approached my pilgrimage with a student's uh, kind of, I don't know, commitment um, I planned for months and had a very ambitious itinerary that included about two dozen of the renowned Zen gardens in that fabled city. I arrived at the height of cherry blossom season, and I had what can only be described as a string of religious experiences, or epiphanies, if you will. Uh, these included one of the most magical experiences of my life. Uh, it happened on a cool morning when I was the first visitor through the gate at Ryoan-ji, which is the most famous of the Zen gardens in Kyoto and in the world, and maybe the most famous garden in the world. As I said, it was a cool morning. A light fog was lifting from the tops of the cherry trees. Uh, and as I padded in my stocking feet around the ancient wooden veranda overlooking the austere rock and raked gravel garden, I was serenaded by a cuckoo. Its haunting song was the only sound to be heard. As I sat there, reveling in this, I was reminded of a poem by the haiku master Basho. Even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoo's cry, I long for Kyoto. Even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoo's cry, I long for Kyoto. It was as if I felt a, a homesickness for a place I had never been, yet I was standing in. That's the way it felt. A homesickness for a place I had never been, but I was standing in. Travelers live for experiences like that, don't we? When you have a place that you've dreamed about for years and years, and it exceeds your every expectation. The other kind of surprise that Travelers long for is the surprise, right? The un, uh, unexpected delight. And Kyoto delivered on that front as well. Immediately adjacent to one of the gardens I wanted to visit was an ancient Shinto shrine called Fushimi Iniri. I knew nothing about Fushimi Iniri, I'd missed it in all my studies. Uh, but I had, had seen one image, and it was tempting. It was in a brochure, and it depicted a pathway lined with tori gates, those classic Japanese gates that look like flattened arches with a little bit of an upturned wing at the end. The image in the brochure was striking, and since I had, gone, I had the time and I had gone out of my way to that, get to that part of the city, I thought, why not? It's right next door to the garden I'm visiting. I'll go check it out. Now, just a word about tori gates. Tori gates are used to designate the entrance to a sacred space, and are commonly placed at the entrance of Shinto shrines all over the country. Fushimi Iniri is a shrine that honors the spirits of agriculture, called Iniri, which in Japan is associated, of course, with rice. 
Aniri is often depicted as either a woman carrying stalks of rice or an old man carrying sacks of grain. Typically, these depictions are also accompanied by foxes, interestingly enough, who are seen as protectors of the grain and messengers of the spirit. And now, of course, foxes kill the rodents that eat the grain. So the fox is associated with protector of the grain. And at Fushimi Aniri, worshippers have erected thousands of vermilion or fox-colored Tory gates as tokens of their gratitude. Thousands of these gates. Beginning at the edge of the shrine's central compound, there's a pa- the pathway lined with Tory gates begins, and it winds its way through forests, over hills, down ravines, and finally up onto a mountaintop. Every step of the way, another Tory gate, another Tory gate, another Tory gate. Tens of thousands of them. All brilliant. Just enough light coming in between the columns to illuminate the paths and make the interior of that vermilion space glow like neon. It was stunning, absolutely stunning. Like stepping into a glowing neon tunnel. And as you headed up the mountain, you experienced the tunnel as a stunning corridor of color. But coming back down on the backs of all the columns in beautiful Japanese kanji, that bold script in black, were inscriptions. And there were each dedications of gratitude from the person who erected that particular gate. When I returned from Japan, I kept thinking back to that experience at Fushimi Niri. There was something about these the symbolism of these gates of gratitude that really stuck with me. Could our life journeys, our pathways through the ravines and mountaintops of our own lives, come be experienced in the same way as a cascading series of gratefully noted steps, each step moving us through a gate of gratitude? What would it be like to live our lives so aware that each step there was a thank you. So that whole symbolism of the gate really stayed with me. Now, as a gardening nerd, I've considered gates before. So let's consider the humble gate for just a moment. This is a lecture about the ordinarily sacred, and gates are rather ordinary things. We usually, of course, encounter them individually. They serve as portals or points of transition from one zone to another. Typically, they interrupt pathways or at the very least delineate a point of transition on a pathway or a journey. They usually don't define the journey itself. As a gardener, I've paid a lot of attention to gates for a long time and teach courses on landscape design, and I always remind my students about the critical importance of transition points. I urge them to consider all the design potentials of the humble gate. Gates guide our feet, since they are usually the means through which we must travel from one space to the next. If there's an actual gateway to be manipulated, we have to pause for a moment to open it. And this slowing down offers an opportunity to delight our senses. One of the oldest garden tricks in the book is to plant fragrant flowers near a gate, because you have slowed down enough for the fragrance to catch up with you. It's a small way to enhance that moment of transition. Another thing about gates is tactile. 
if it, again, if you have to manipulate it, it's the opportunity to touch somebody's senses. Carefully wrought iron or a humble wooden latch in your hand. Gateways also frame our views, just like the Tory gates in Japan. Or they can block them if there's a door involved. Either way, they provide either a clear picture of what lies ahead or the element they build in an element of surprise when you open the door. Yes, like so many of the ordinary things in our lives, gateways provide extraordinary opportunities. But only if we approach them thoughtfully, only if we invest them with meaning through the gift of our attention, and obviously not all gateways are created equal. Now, the more I've thought about my experience at the gates of Fushimi and Neri, the more I've wondered how I could bring some of that experience into my own life on a daily basis, to make the sacred geography and architecture of that place routine in my place. The fact that the Tory gates of Fushimi and Neri are expressions of gratitude is key to my understanding of how this might be possible. John Milton once said that gratitude bestows reverence, allowing us to encounter everyday epiphanies those transcendent moments of awe that change forever how we experience life and the world. Gratitude bestows reverence, allowing us to experience everyday epiphanies. I've never read a better description of what I consider to be the ordinarily sacred in the mystery that we call the sacred than this. I've long believed that gratitude and reverence are the mother virtues So I'm glad to know that Milton's on my side. So how do we make the ordinarily sacred and everyday reality in our lives? It's the same dilemma presented by the Buddha when he suggested that you cannot travel on the path until you become the path. Hmm. So how do we become gratitude? How do we cultivate this foundational virtue in our lives and plant our own gates along the way of our paths. I use the word cultivate very consciously, because while gratitude may be the mother of virtues, it too must grow from someplace or somewhere. Now, this might strike some of you as odd, because most of us, or many of us, I should say, think of the sacred as being something akin to the mist I saw rising from the cherry trees at Rio Anji. A mysterious, formless, thingless, placeless, vaporized spirituality. However, the more I think about it, or have actually experienced it in my life, I've come to think of the sacred as something very particular. It springs from a place. It can be touched seen, heard, experienced with all of our senses. The magic of it, if you will, if you'll forgive my use of that word, comes not in these concrete things themselves, but rather in their fleeting encounter with our gratitude, our reverence, and our attention. However, one of the greatest challenges facing us as 21st century Americans is that we have created an empire of placelessness an empire of placelessness and distraction. It's getting harder and harder to encounter the specific, the sense-filling and wonder-inspiring 
The fields where gratitude might encounter the particular are being paved over by the generic. You know the song. Joni Mitchell had it right. We paved paradise, put up a parking lot. It's interesting to note that the great Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann once said that the great crisis of the modern age is not a lack of meaning, but a lack of place. There are no meanings apart from roots. There are no meanings apart from roots. I was listening to our hymn this morning with its reference to roots that bind us and wings that lift us. There's a beautiful expression of to our children we give two things. One is roots, the other wings. I think we're overloaded them a little bit with wings these days. Not enough roots. But those are the two essentials to our children. One of my favorite philosophers, an old crank, Christopher Lash, the author of The Culture of Narcissism, uh, once noted that uprootedness uproots everything except for the need for roots. Uprootedness uproots everything except for the need for roots. It's hard to be grateful if you're untethered. It's hard to pay attention you're untethered. To what are you reverent if you're untethered? The greatest philosopher of poet and place in the United States today is Wendell Berry, and I was delighted to hear one of his beautiful Sabbath poems earlier in the service. Wendell Berry is a shy yet flinty farmer from Kentucky. He's a farmer first and foremost Yet somehow, despite the fact that he works in the fields that his father worked and his father's father before him, he has written dozens of superb novels, hundreds and hundreds of beautiful poems, and he's considered one of the great essayists alive in the United States today. His poetry springs from a, love, uh, a loving cultivation and commitment to his place, first and foremost. is a reflection of his exhausting labor and sweat, as well as his loving attention and gentle observance. His muse is nurtured in the same way that he nurtures the soil that sustains his fields. He lives, in a, uh, he lives according to an ancient and yes, sacred routine, returning to the earth under his feet some measure of the blessings he has received, turning his blessings in and harvesting gratitude, sacred compost something we humans born of humus should take heed to. Now, you and I might not be farmers. Probably not all of you are gardeners. But what, we, but what are we doing for the places we encounter every single day? The places that sustain us and in the world in which our children must live. What are we doing to cultivate health and wholeness in the world we step through. Have we become so rootless that we have completely deluded ourselves into believing that we're free of obligations and responsibilities to a particular place? The 10,000 gates of Fushimi and Yuri remind us not to take any of our places for granted. Each step matters. We shouldn't take the people in our lives for granted either or the things we use. We're, you know, in our culture, we are constantly urged to hurry along our way, 
Look at this next thing. Look at that thing. Look over here. Look over there. Everything clamoring for our attention. Trying to distract us to look at something. All of which really ends up looking like nothing. But there is something gnawing at us. We feel a loss. It is almost as if we feel a homesickness for a place we've never been, and yet we are standing in. The gnawing we feel is inside of us, but it's also part of the longing of the ordinarily sacred for us. Sacred longing for us. Because without our attention, without our gratitude, without our reverence, it's just that connection isn't made. That magic moment, that fleeting moment doesn't occur. It needs us just as we need it. If you're familiar with Barry's poetry, you know that he's written hundreds of what he calls his Sabbath poems. His Sunday or Sabbath routine is to leave the fields of the farm behind and seek out that place that was described so beautifully in that poem we read earlier, that place where he encounters original creation, the deep stands of forest beyond the fields. At the point of transition between these two sacred realms and his sacred geography stands what Barry calls the narrow gate. Let's listen to Barry describe his way up through the fields and through the gate. What is the way to the woods? How do you get there? By climbing up through the six days' fields, kept in all the body's years. The body's sorrow, weariness, and joy. By passing through the narrow gate on the far side of the field, where the pasture grass of the body's life gives way to the high original standing of trees. By coming into the shadow, the shadow of the grace of the straight ways ending, the shadow of the mercy of light. Why must the gate be narrow? Because we cannot pass beyond it burdened. We cannot pass beyond it burdened. And I would add, we cannot pass beyond that narrow gate, distracted, ungrateful, or rootless. What awaits us in the woods? Barry describes a sacred encounter in one of his Sabbath poems titled The Hidden Singer. In this work, he encourages us to cast aside ancient conceptions of thundering deities and urges us to listen carefully for a quiet song. The Hidden Singer. The gods are less for their love of praise. Above and below them all is a spirit that needs nothing but its own wholeness, its health and ours. It has made all things by dividing itself. It will be whole again. To its joy we come together, the seer and the seen, the eater and the eaten, the lover and the loved. In our joining, it knows itself. It is with us then, not as the gods whose names crest in unearthly fire, but as a little bird, hidden in the leaves, who sings quietly and waits and sings. It is interesting to note that the Japanese word tori means bird person. 
My friends, our way through the six-day appeal will inevitably be marked by all-too-human sorrow, weariness, and joy with our human faith. But may our passage also be marked by a quiet song lifted from deep-rooted perches planted by grateful and listening I've asked the staff to distribute uh, Wendell Berry poem that I'd like to end with today. If we could read this up together, please. If you don't have one, uh, it's bold enough that you probably could share with your neighbors. Please join me in reading to the Holy Spirit. O thou, far off and here, whole and broken, who in necessity and in bounty wait, whose truth is light and dark, mute though spoken, by thy wide grace, show me thy narrow gate. Amen. The offering reading is called Call for a Community Seeking Change by Naomi King. We know there is a great abundance in our world, a great abundance of suffering, of people homeless, hungry, frightened, lonely in danger, sick, exhausted, and wondering when this abundant suffering shall cease. We know there is great abundance in our world, a great abundance of love, of people caring, building homes for those who need them, feeding folks who hunger, comforting folks who are frightened, inviting folks who are lonely into company, creating peace and safety zones, healing and being with the sick, and welcoming the weary to a place of rest. We are the people of abundance, people who have known love and offer our love as a blessing to the world. As we receive disappointment, anguish, and anger, we transform those curses into the blessings of hope, joy, and love. As we offer those blessings to the world, so our blessings increase. The smile of gratitude eases our hearts. The dance of joy sweeps us into the circle. And the light of this chalice changes our world. We are the change we wish to see through what we give. What change will you bless this world with today? Let this morning's offering now be given and received. The closing words are by Eric Walker Wickstrom. The purpose of this community is to help its people grow through encounters with the unknown, however hard that might be, because these encounters have many gifts to offer. So may you go forth from here this morning, not who you were, but who you could be. So may we all. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org